Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 4 as we make our way through the scriptures. I've entitled the morning's message, A Prophet Without Honor. Paul read for us uh, our text, a little bit lengthier text than usual, so I'm not going to reread it. I will make my way up to it, and then we will go through that verse by verse. But as we look at this portion of Luke's account, Jesus would now be 30 years old. He has been living in Nazareth with his mother Mary and Joseph. Um, Not really said much about him since he was 12. At 12, he was found in the temple teaching the scribes and Pharisees. They marveled. And uh, Mary, of course, was worried and upset when she couldn't find him. And he just said, I must be about my father's business. Then we don't hear anything until we get to chapter three of Luke, verse 21. And Jesus is now going to be recognized by John the Baptist as the Messiah. So let me draw your attention. This is his baptism. Uh, Chapter three, verse 21. And when all the people who were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens opened. Oh, what I would have given to seen that. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. In another place, John was told, The one that you see the Holy Spirit land upon, then you will know that's the one. And that day came. And John says, there he is. There's a Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. What I'd like to point out here, there is false doctrine out there that hold to, I call them Jesus only, because they don't hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. They say, well, the Trinity's not in the Bible. Yes, it's in the Bible from Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning, Elohim. Um, Singular for God is El, in the beginning El, but that's not what it says. It says, in the beginning Elohim. So now you got the Father and the Son, a plurality. And then, the next couple of verses, it says, and the Spirit of God brooded over the waters. So right from Genesis, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 26 of Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. Again, plurality. But here is uh, the scripture you use to say, well, no, it doesn't use the word Trinity, but if you have the Holy Spirit descending and you have the Father speaking and you have it landing upon the Son, that sure sounds like the Trinity to me. Somebody gonna give me an amen on that? It's, it's clear. So this is the beginning of the Lord's ministry. Um, beginning with chapter four, uh, he is, we know where Jesus uh, was, we know where John the Baptist was baptizing us down by Qumran on the Jordan, a place called Bethbara, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And we know the general location of where that is. So that area is all wilderness. And um, years ago when we take groups to Israel, um, (laughs) they're famous for having the place that this happened. So the place where Jesus was tempted, uh, we used to be able to go into Jericho and you could take this tram up. It was called the Mount of Temptation. And they said, this is where Jesus was tempted by the devil for the 40 days. No, it wasn't. (laughs) We don't know where it was, but it was somewhere in that general vicinity. It just tells us here that the Holy Spirit took him into the wilderness. And being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written. Okay, again, I'm gonna point this out. 
as we go through the Bible, every time there's a prophecy, I'm gonna say, here's a prophecy. Because the church is getting away from Bible prophecy, that's because they're getting away from the Bible. Um, They're illiterate when it comes to understand Old Testament prophecy. But I can't teach through a chapter without reading what I'm about to read. I'm gonna read it at least three times in our study this morning. Here's the first one. It is written. Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. Then he says, for this has been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is, what? written it is written you shall worship the Lord your God in him only shall you serve that's Deuteronomy chapter 6 now what I want to point out here is we know because of Colossians 1 John 1 and Hebrews 1 that the Lord created all things everything that is was created by the Lord Jesus Christ including Um, powers and principalities, you and me, this world. And yet the devil says that it was given to him. Question, when and where? Well, when Adam and Eve fell. They were uh, to take care of planet Earth, till the garden. When they sinned, it was forfeited. And it was forfeited evidently to the God of this world. Now, even though the victory has been won on Calvary's cross. And as Paul later says, all things are under his feet, under the Lord's feet. But then he goes on to say, yet we don't see everything under his authority yet. So even though the price has been paid, it's like you go in Christmas shopping ahead of time. You put money on something down and you go to pick it up later. Well, the price has been paid. And the Lord, in Revelation chapter 5, um, there's a scroll in the Father's hands. And I believe it's the title deed, the planet Earth. Um, nobody was worthy to take the scroll, not even to look at it. And this was so overwhelming to John, the apostle, that he began to weep. He wept because the thought of this world remaining under the control of the devil was more than he could handle, and he broke down. An angel said, weep not, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the scroll. So he walks up to the father. He says, I'll take that. And when that happens, all of heaven rejoices because now he is taking back the title deed, that which he rightfully purchased on Calvary's cross. So Jesus does not dispute, as we read here, the devil says, this world's been delivered to me. That's true. The Lord did dispute it. And, um, and he turned it down. There's another one coming who's not gonna turn it down. His name is the Antichrist. And for three and a half years, he's gonna have his full way with people worshiping him because that's what he wanted Jesus to do here. And I'm talking about the second half of the tribulation period. All right, let's read the last one, verse nine. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from fear for it is written. That's three times, right? He shall give his, by the way, who's quoting scripture here? Yeah, the devil knows scripture and he quotes scripture. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, that's four times, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him and never came back again. 
Is that what it says? No, and that's not, that's not the way it is for you or I either. Um, Bible says, greater is he who is in me that's in the world. And um, he has no authority over us, but it doesn't mean that he won't tempt us. It, it won't mean he won't try to oppress us. Um, but the Bible says again, if you resist the devil, he'll re- he will flee from you. It's when we listen a second time. It's when we look the second time. And we're not holding up the shield of faith where we get ourselves in trouble. Good place for an amen. But he has no authority if, if you're willing to resist. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter, chapter 4, verse 15. Tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that he might be able to identify with our frailty, our temptations. This was allowed to take place. Every temptation that you've ever experienced, Jesus has experienced. The only difference is he successfully resisted everyone every time. Another good place for it, amen. He had to be the perfect lamb without blemish in thought, word, and deed. And he lived the perfect life. But the Lord allowed this so that he could, as the son of man, identify with what you and I have to deal with with a very corrupt, polluted, evil world. That brings us to, let's go back to Luke 4. This morning, in 14 and 15, he is now actually starting his ministry, in verse 14. When Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, the news of him went out throughout all the surrounding regions. Wherever the Lord went, the word went out before him where people were actually waiting for him in multitudes because they heard Jesus was coming because of all the wonderful things that now he was doing. Verse 15, he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So when they came, they brought their sick, they brought their lame, and he would minister to them and um, heal their infirmities, cast out the demons. As we get into this this morning, and um, we find that he was glorified by all here, but we read, and I'm gonna contrast this this morning, that when it came to his own people, and when it came to his own hometown, he was despised, and he was rejected, and they wanted to kill him. So this morning we will look at not only the reason for Jesus' rejection in Nazareth, but also I'd like to look at Old Testament prophecies of his first coming. Number two, I'd like to talk about the future coming of the Lord's judgment on this earth during the tribulation. Number three, I want to point out patterns of time from one verse to the next. And even in one case, a gap of time in the very same sentence. And finally, uh, we will see that God's word has to say to us as believers what it's like when we are despised and rejected by our own family members, co-workers, and friends for no other reason than for being a Christian. There's a certain animosity. Uh, There's a certain um, being despised and rejected um, because uh, you're a Christian. So that brings us to our text, Luke chapter four, verse 16. I just want to read this one verse. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Do you realize that the Lord had customs? Jewish people are known for their customs, for their 
What? Tradition. <laughs> For their traditions or customs. The Lord's custom, according to this verse, was he was in a synagogue uh, every, every Saturday. It's clear the Lord taught that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. First, that should be our priority over our time, over our money, and over our activities. That that should be number one. Jesus' custom was every Saturday, he was in the synagogue, and um, he was about his father's business. I want to talk about your customs. I'll talk a little bit about my customs, or what we generally call our daily routine. My daily and weekly routine goes something like this. Um, (laughs) There's things that I shouldn't say, but I say them anyway. I really believe that the Lord put me in the ministry for a reason, so that I would have to go to church every Sunday. I would have to go to men's prayer meeting. I'd have to go to Wednesday night study because I'm the guy teaching it. And I seriously doubt if I wasn't in that position, if I'd be that strict with my commitments. And I'm just trying to be honest with you. So my, my routine, and a lot of it is because that's the way the ministry is laid out for, for me, is uh, I like personally reading uh, Pastor Chuck, Wisdom for Today, first thing in the morning. Chuck can say more in one page than most pastors can in an hour. And he goes through the whole Bible. And then sometimes I like to play music and sing. Not always, but sometimes. Um, Sometimes just getting into the word. Then, of course, here every Sunday. And then here, well, I'm here every Wednesday. And then, unless I'm traveling, the highlight of my week is men's prayer. And, um, and we have the women's, women's prayer. So here's my question. What's your custom and do you have one? And um, are you committed to it? Uh, now, I understand that some can't come to church every Sunday, either because they work. One of the things that really irks me is that they're now having um, volleyball for the kids on Sundays. And now they're forced to make a decision. You know, you want, to, you want your kids to play volleyball or whatever. But it means, mom and dad, do you do that? Or do you set the example saying, no, you can play, but this is more important. And we have to make this a priority. I understand some can't because of their age. Some live in nursing homes. So praise the Lord for live stream. There's people that can't be here this morning because they have health issues or they're in nursing homes, but I know they're watching right now. So, lest I misunderstood, no guilt trip here. But um, if it's in your ability to be in fellowship in church on Sunday morning, I want you to know that was Jesus' custom. And I think, Dad, especially, this is pointed at you. You set the tone for this as, as an example. Uh, what's your custom and where do your priorities lie? Um, I'll tr- Maybe this is a good place to work in. Let me just give you a reason why. This is just what happened this week. On Wednesday, I announced in the news bites that the Pope Francis was meeting with the, the leader of the Muslim world. And together, you saw the news bites, they're asking for a one world religion. Now that should make your jaw drop, okay? But let me just tell you what happened that I shared with the guys at Ben's Prayer um, yesterday. Pope Francis is now in Dubai. And for those of you who have been around me long enough, you know my feelings about Dubai. And um, what I think it could be, as far as Bible prophecy is concerned, with ancient Babylon coming again. He met with the world political leaders, Pope Francis, in Dubai, I think it was on Friday, it was reported on Saturday, and he's calling for a one world government. So in one week, 
What does it, what does it say in Hebrews 10.25? It says, uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And we know that is the manner of some. They don't fellowship. But then it says, don't forsake that, but do it that much more as you see the day approaching. All right, I'm just asking an honest question. Do you see the day approaching? Does the Bible not say there's gonna be a one world religion and a one world government? Has not this been reported? Is this factual news or am I making it up? Be a Berean, check it out. This is this week, gang. My question is, Lord, how late is it? You know, and we're to be doing it all the much more. But what's sad is that the scriptures teach that in the last days they won't endure sound doctrine. They'll go after teachers who will tell them what they want to hear instead of what you need to hear. And being exhorted to make priority church. Wednesday night Bible study. Gang, that's where we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Where we crack out three or four chapters. Oh, that was a lie. Two or three chapters. (laughs) And... The exhortation there is to do it more and more and more. But unfortunately, the scripture says there's gonna be a falling away instead. And I see it happening. I see false teachers and false prophets. As long as I'm meandering, Paul Cain, one of the Kansas City prophets at the age of 89, died this week. Um, Paul Cain, along with Mike Bickle, Bob Jones, um, they were big during the, the 80s. Um, he was, uh, for lack of a better word, a con man. Uh, he was a homosexual. And this is, what I'm ta- talking to you is, is not rumors or, or gossip. This is clearly printed in, in uh, Christianity today when he when these things were exposed. Well, he died just this week. But he was one of, I'm just curious, how many of you have been around long enough to hear and understand what the Kansas City prophets were? Not as many as I was hoping for. Um, Basically, uh, they're a part of a very charismatic group that believes that the prophetic ministries um, would run directly through them as prophets. And it was really a shepherding doctrine. Let me give you an example. Let's say you wanted to get married. And, um, but you couldn't get married unless you actually got the green light from a Mike Bickle or Paul Cain. And the thing about this guy is Chuck talked about him. He says, I knew this guy in the 50s. He's been doing this his whole life, uh, taking advantage of people. And um, um, here is clearly one of the things that the Lord said would be happening. Well, he's not dead. He might have left his body and he's in for one rude awakening. And I better get back to where I was or I'm gonna forget where I was. So um, back to where our priorities lie, just making sure that the scriptures say this is gonna happen and we need to keep our priorities straight. All right, let's read verses 17 through 21. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say unto them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If you're counting right, that's five prophecies. And um, we're only up to verse 21 so far in Luke chapter 4. Turn with me to where this prophecy comes from. It comes from Isaiah chapter 61. So I'll I'll give you a minute to make your way back to that. And we're just going to read the first two verses. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 
because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma. This, verse two, is a complete sentence that he does not finish. He stops after a comma, and he doesn't read the rest of the sentence, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. He doesn't quote the day of vengeance of our God. Let's go back to Luke and notice, and remember earlier that I said that there's going to be gaps in, in, um, from one verse to a next verse. And I said earlier that there's gonna be a gap even in one sentence. Jesus closed the book after, if you look at verse nine, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, there's a period here, but there's not a period in Isaiah. There's a comma, because that's not the end of the sentence. The end of the sentence is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus could not finish the sentence, because that is still yet future. What was being fulfilled that day is that he is revealing himself to his hometown saying that the one prophesied by Isaiah, the one who is going to preach the gospel to the poor and give sight to the blind, so on and so forth. That is happening and being fulfilled in this synagogue on this Saturday, on this day, closed book, sit down. It's fulfilled right now. But what I want to point out, and as we get into studying God's word, it's the norm to find these gaps there, and it's not um, admiral. Let me just give you two examples. Turn to me, I could give you many, but for time's sake, I'm only gonna give you two. Go to Daniel 9, one most of us here are very familiar with. This would have been the prophecy when Jesus would come and die. Daniel 9, verse 26, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Well, we know that that happened 2,000 years ago. And then he talks about, he prophesies about uh, the temple being destroyed by the Romans. That's in verse 26 also. That's, that was fulfilled in 70 AD. These are facts of history. Then, between verse 26 and 27, there is a gap of some 2,000 years between what, from one verse to the next. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he will bring an end of sacrifice and offering. He's making a reference to the abomination of desolation. That is yet future, taking place in the middle of the tribulation. So what we have, and the reason I have you here, is again to point out that there is a gap of time, in this case, 2,000 years. Let me just give you one more. the second to the last book in um, the Old Testament is Zechariah. So go to Zechariah chapter nine. Uh, look at verse nine. We quote this all the time when we have Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, that was fulfilled on what we call Palm Sunday, and um, that is in verse nine. But in verse 10, this is clearly a scripture that talks about the millennium. So between verse nine and 10, again, we have a gap of time of at least 2,000 years. Let's read it. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim, and the horses from Jerusalem. The battle bowl shall be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea. This can only be a reference to the millennium when the kingdom age is set up, but in the meantime, you have verse nine, past tense. You have verse 10, yet future to come. And there's others that I could give you But as we look at this one from 
Luke 14, where Jesus stops at a comma, I just wanted to point out that this isn't the only place it happens. Uh, It happens frequently in scripture. All right, verse 22 through 27. So, all bore witness to him. Oh, they marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They were shocked. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's kid? I mean, he grew up here. We've known, we've known Jesus his whole life. And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to be physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha. Okay, notice that we went from Elijah to Elisha, the prophet. And none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. So the Lord is illustrating this in a marvelous way. He cited two Gentiles who lived outside of the land of Israel, the widow, and Naaman from Syria, in whose lives God worked miraculously, and he's trying to show them that they, his own people, were apt to miss a great blessing because they would not accept who he was. They would be like um, the many widows and the many lepers of Israel who were not healed during the time of Elijah and Elisha. I want to do a little looking at Nahum and him in 2 Kings chapter five. So let's go back, and I have a purpose for doing this. Um, first of all, it's a great story, but in 2 Kings chapter five, Nahum is introduced to us here as a great commander in 2 Kings 5.1. Nahum was the, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great, honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He had leprosy. And the Syrians went out on a raid, and when they came back, they brought back a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. So now we have a Jewish young girl who is the cook for Naaman's wife. And one day they're talking and having a conversation. And she said um, to Naaman's wife, he said, if, you only, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Israel in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went and told the king. He said, look, this girl's a Jewish girl. She says there's a prophet down in Israel. I got leprosy. And she said, I could be healed. And so what the king does is he writes a letter, verse five. He stacks up Naaman with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he writes a letter to the king of Israel. And it says, now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you so that you can heal him of leprosy. And the king freaks out. He says, this is a trap. He's trying to pick a fight with me. I can't heal anybody of anything. And so he's sending this entourage down here, all this silver, all this gold. Leprosy is incurable. So he's just wanting to start a fight. I'm in big trouble. So what does he do? Takes his garment, rips it open, because... As far as he's concerned, he doesn't want a shooting match with the king of Syria. 
and he's just getting set up, but that's not the case at all. We read that Elisha in verse eight hears about it, that the king had torn his clothes. And he says, send a message to the king. Send Nahum over to my house. Don't worry about it. Chill, king, simmer down. And so Nahum and his horses came and stood at the door of Elisha. They go to where Elisha is, he pulls up. Elisha doesn't even come out. He sends one of his servants. He says, uh, uh, go tell Nahum here to uh, just go down to the Jordan. And when he gets down to the Jordan, just tell him to dip himself in the water seven times. He'll be fine. Then he can go home. And what happens when Elisha didn't come out to meet Nahum, verse 11, Nahum blows his top. He becomes furious. He said, I came all the way here and this guy doesn't have enough respect to even come out of his house and wave his hand and heal my leprosy. And he's so ticked off, he says, look, we got rivers in Syria that are better than this one down here in Jordan. So he's in a tizzy and he says, I'm out of here. I'm going back. And his servant, Nahum's servant, comes up to him and says, Slow down, cool off. And he said, what if the prophet would have asked you to do some great deed, and then you'd get healed? You would have done it. What do you got to lose? Why don't you just simmer down a little bit and do what the prophet asked you to do? And he goes, all right, I can just pretty much see his attitude, going from being really ticked to, well, what do I got to lose? I might as well give it a try. So he goes down to the Jordan, He dipped seven times and he comes out and verse 14 says his flesh was like the little child and he was clean. And he goes, I can't believe it. So now he wants to go back and thank Elisha. So he goes back to Elisha and he says, please, let me give you something. Let me give you a gift. And in verse 16, Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. He says, I don't want your money. Uh, have a nice day. Go home. And now, Nahum realizes, he's thinking ahead. I have a problem here. I know that your God is God. Only God can cure something that's not curable. I gotta go back to my country where I'm the commander of the army. And part of my job is going into the temple of Rimon and worshiping there. Elisha, can I have a couple bags of dirt from Israel? So that when I go back to this temple, I'm gonna put that dirt down from Israel. And when I have to pray, because that's my job as the commander, that your God will forgive me because I know that your God is God. And when I have to pray to this other God, Uh, may it be on Israeli soil in my heart I'm not worshiping him I'm worshiping him and Elijah says in verse 19 go in peace so he takes off and he's headed home now we're introduced to Gehazi okay Gehazi is Naaman's uh, helper Uh, I mean um, Elisha's helper and um, he's thinking, I gotta get something out of this. So he begins to chase Nahum and he starts running after him. And Nahum looks over his shoulder and, he's, and he sees Gehazi running him down. And so he stops and he says, is everything okay? What are you chasing me for? He says, well, my master has set me saying indeed, It just happened that two young men of the sons of the prophets have uh, come from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garment. Lie. So Nahum said, please take take two, two talents. And he urged them and bound two talents of silver in two bags and two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried them on ahead of them. So... Gehazi 
uh, came to the citadel, citadel, and he took them from their hand and stored them in, in the, the house. Then he let the men go and they departed. And so he went and stood before his master and Elijah said to him, where have you been today, Gehazi? What have you been up to? Uh, where'd you go? Did you go anywhere? And he said, nah, didn't go anywhere. Lie number two. And then Elijah said, did not my heart go with you when the men turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money, to receive clothing, olive, groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen, male, female servants? Therefore, you're gonna reap what you sowed, Gehazi. The leprosy that was on Nam shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous and as white as snow. The reason I wanted to do a little sidetrack here is to talk a little bit about um, the integrity of the Apostle Paul as he said goodbye to the leaders in the church of Ephesus. He'd been there for a while. He'd been discipling them, training them. And he wanted to pass on to him character issues for people that are gonna be involved in ministry. Okay, so this is his farewell. If you're taking notes, I'm quoting Acts chapter 20, verse 33. As he's saying goodbye and talking about his time there, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He was like Elijah. I don't want your money. I'm just serving the Lord. What's your motive, Elijah? I love God, he called me, put his anointing on me and I don't want anything to do with your money. Um, the Lord is, is my provider. This is what Paul was trying to pass on to the leaders in Ephesus. And as he's saying goodbye, and the reason I bring it up today is there's too many prosperity doctrines out there. There's too many prosperity teachers. And as far as I'm concerned, they're Gehazi's and they have a motive that is not biblical, and it's sending a message to the average person that's watching that isn't saved, and the average person who's watching that isn't saved saying, I'm not dumb. I know what you guys are are doing here. You're on the take. And um, um, one of the, this isn't in my notes either. (laughs) Sometimes we always have visitors, or we always have new people watching live stream. And um, sometimes they'll hang around for a month just waiting for me to say something about money. And I've had many a person approach me that said, okay, I've been here for a month now and I've been waiting for you to play the money card and you haven't said a thing about it. And I said, I'll, I'll say something about it. When we get to that part of the Bible that talks about money, I'll talk about money, but not until then. Yeah, but you guys don't even pass the plate. You got a box back there. Yeah, you know what that means? It means if you want to put something in it, go ahead. If you don't, don't. And let me take it a step farther. The Bible says the Lord loves a hilarious giver. He wants you to do it with joy. If you can't give to the Lord joyfully, don't do it. That's what the Bible teaches. So if you're one of those persons as that's visiting and you're waiting for me to get around to the money pitch of the Bible study, you're gonna be disappointed. It's not coming. Just the opposite. I wanna point out Elisha. You wanna give me all this money? Don't want it. But there's always somebody in the crowd that does. I'm not saying the crowd here, but in Christianity that are into it for the wrong reasons. And believe me, Paul Cade who just died, he was one of them. And there's so many prosperity teachers, I don't want to get that sidetracked. But Paul's quote, I've coveted no one's silver or apparel. There's Paul's ministry today, and then there, there are those that are Gehazi's. They're in it for what they can get, and they're on the take. Let's move on. Let's finish it in verses 28 through 30. Then all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. 
and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill. Now I forgot to do this in the first service, but I have a picture of, um, we call it the precipice. When we go to Israel, we actually go to a spot. So guys, if you'll put that picture of Nazareth. This is a cliff um, that overlooks um, what someday will be the valley of Armageddon. Often I've thought about this. This is, uh, we call it the precipice. We have a Bible study up here. And it has such a beautiful view. If you would go directly across that valley, you would end up as what's called Megiddo. And we have a Bible study there. But um, when it says they took him and, and they would have led him to the brow of the hill of the city, here's a visual. And you could, uh, um, we actually visit, visit this uh, spot. And it may not be an A site, but um, I've often thought, I mean, Jesus grew up probably taking walks, looking over this beautiful valley many, many times, realizing that someday he'd return to this very valley when it would be filled with the armies of the world coming against him at the Battle of Armageddon. And he would, he, he would have looked at this on a daily basis. Well, this is his hometown. Let's finish the sentence. And that they might throw him over the cliff, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, they wanted to kill him. And so how the Lord just decided, well, I'm just going to walk on by. And he did. So as we wrap this up this morning, I want to contrast verse 15 of chapter 4. Everywhere but his hometown, what did they do? He was glorified by all that were touched and healed by him. But when he came to his hometown, this was the attitude. Who in the world do you think you are, Jesus? When people, when you become a Christian, and if you grew up in a hometown, (laughs) Oshkosh has a reputation. That's the town I grew up in. Do you know that Nazareth had a reputation? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was what the saying was. That's sort of the saying of Oshkosh. It was a party town. It was a college town. Uh, Johnny Carson used to say there's two places to be in the world on St. Patrick's Day. Dublin and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. We'd start drinking green beer at 10 o'clock in the morning. And we're usually throwing it up by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's what I grew up with. And it was known for a party type town. Um, so when I got saved, uh, and all my friends knew me, and I was just an Oshkosh guy. And, um, but on a serious note, my friends and I, my two best friends, we were honestly looking for answers. We wanted to know if there was any real truth. We talked peace and love, but we really hadn't had it. Well, I met the Lord. I meant the Prince of Peace. I meant the God of love. And I couldn't wait to tell my two best friends. Oh man, we finally found it. They're gonna be so excited that we found the answer. That's what I was thinking. I came and they gave me a look like, who in the world do you think you are? Oh, so now you're better than we are now. Instead of being happy, (laughs) they totally blew me off. And... um, until Pat got miraculously saved, which, but that was years later. But what I wanted to give to them, they completely rejected. And not only was it now I not one of their inner circle of best friends, I was on the outs, because we simply had nothing in common any longer. So the attitude of the people of Nazareth, we know you, you grew up in this town. Do you actually think you're better than we are? And so jealousy sets in. And um, an attitude, oh, you think you're better than we are? The reason I'm going down this, this path is there's people watching right now and that are here right now. 
I had one guy in the first service who was really going through it with a family member. And um, he just said, Dwight, you just you nailed it right between the eyes, just for me personally this morning. Because exactly what you're talking about is exactly what I'm going through right now. I'm hated and despised, and it's only because I'm a Christian. So what, so what does God's word say about being rejected by family and friends in the world that we live in that hate and despise you? If you're taking notes, John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do not marvel, this is 1 John 3.13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. What we need to understand about what Jesus taught on this issue. Now, it says Matthew chapter 10, in my notes, my wife told me, I said Mark chapter 10 and confused everybody in the first service. <laughs> so, I'm gonna make sure it's Matthew chapter 10, turn to that, and we'll close with these verses this morning. What does the Lord actually teach about family relationships when it comes to us sharing the gospel with them? Verse 34, chapter 10. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you know there's people that will not come to the Lord? Because if they do, they know that their spouse is gonna want out. And for that reason, they don't come to Christ. Or vice versa. And um, some people won't because uh, they're afraid of what people will think of about them on the job site. Oh, you're one of those holy rollers now, huh? And all of a sudden they don't wanna hang with you and you're not willing to count the cost to put the Lord first. So, how are we to deal with it? Well, this is how Paul dealt with it in writing to the Philippians, and I will close with this. What do you do? You keep on keeping on. You keep on pressing on. You don't change one bit. If you really love that person, you keep on telling them that God loves them. You give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And realize um, when the prophets gave their messages, Jesus' comment to that was, well, which of the prophets didn't they kill? You see, it's an unpopular message. And the reason it's an unpopular message, John tells us, People don't come to the light because they love the darkness. They don't want to become a Christian. That means they can't continue living on in their sin. Men love darkness rather than the light. Therefore, they don't come to the light. Unfortunately, it usually takes a breaking process for a person to be breaking or broken till he's down far enough that he finally looks up and he says, okay, I give up. If you're real, then you got me. But it should be the goodness of the Lord that leads a person to repentance. Good place for an amen. But unfortunately, God has to use discipline and knock us off our horses, and that's probably the majority of people that get saved. They go through a difficult time, and then they finally cry out to the Lord. In the meantime, don't understand this. You're not gonna be loved and respected because you're a Christian. Just the opposite. So, um, what Paul said, look, I have not already attained and I'm not perfect. That's always good to know. Do you know that you're never gonna be perfect as long as we're living in this body? He says, but I press on. That I lay lay hold for that which Christ Jesus also lay hold of me. Gang, 
You keep on talking. Uh, Are they going to like it? No. But you're going to run across that one person that is so ripe to pick because he's been primed and primed and primed and you get the privilege and all you do is say, hey, you know, Jesus loves you. I need the Lord in my life so bad. Would you pray with me? How often do you hear that? Hardly never. (laughs) But it happens because there are those that the Lord is preparing to be picked. And they're just waiting for somebody to tell them the truth. But know that the Bible teaches the majority of the time, and this is from Isaiah 53, that was prophesied. Here's another prophecy about Jesus, my last one. Isaiah 53.3, he is despised and he is rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And yet it says he went to the cross despising the shame, but he did it for the very purpose because of the love that he had for you. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your word, Lord, addresses every issue of life. And I know that there's people here this morning that are men of sorrow like yourself because they're despised by their own family. They're rejected by their friends that they once had. Lord, I pray that you would give them the endurance that Paul talked about, to press on and not give up, to keep on uh, sharing with those that'll hear. Lord, your disciples would go to a town and, and not be received, and you just told them, well, shake off the dust and go on to the next one. So help us do the same thing, Lord. Put a burning in our heart um, to prioritize you in our lives and um, to never be ashamed of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves them. You give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And realize, um, when the prophets gave their messages, Jesus' comment to that was, well, which of the prophets didn't they kill? You see, it's an unpopular message, and the reason it's an unpopular message, John tells us, people don't come to the light, because they love the darkness. They don't want to become a Christian. That means they can't continue living on in their sin. Men love darkness rather than the light, therefore they don't come to the light. Unfortunately, it usually takes a breaking process for a person to be breaking or broken till he's down far enough that he finally looks up and he says, okay, I give up. If you're real, then you got me. But it should be the goodness of the Lord that leads a person to repentance. Good place for an amen. But unfortunately, God has to use discipline and knock us off our horses. And that's probably the majority of people that get saved. They go through a difficult time. And then they finally cry out to the Lord. In the meantime, don't understand this. You're not going to be loved and respected because you're a Christian. Just the opposite. So, um, what Paul said, look, I have not already attained and I'm not perfect. That's always good to know. Do you know that you're never going to be perfect as long as we're living in this body? He says, but I press on that I lay lay hold for that which Christ Jesus also lay hold of me. Gang, you keep on talking. Uh, Are they going to like it? No. No. But you're going to run across that one person that is so ripe to pick because he's been primed and primed and primed and you get the privilege and all you do is say, hey, you know, Jesus loves you. I need the Lord in my life so bad. Would you pray with me? How often do you hear that? Hardly never. (laughs) But it happens because there are those that the Lord is preparing to be picked and they're just waiting for somebody to tell them the truth. But know that the Bible teaches the majority of the time, and this is from Isaiah 53, that was prophesied. Here's another prophecy about Jesus, my last one. Isaiah 53, 3. He is despised and he is rejected by men. A man of sorrows, 
acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And yet it says he went to the cross, despising the shame, but he did it for the very purpose, because of the love that he had for you. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your word, Lord, addresses every issue of life. And I know that there's people here this morning that are men of sorrow like yourself because they're despised by their own family. They're rejected by their friends that they once had. Lord, I pray that you would give them the endurance that Paul talked about, to press on and not give up, to keep on uh, sharing with those that'll hear. Lord, your disciples would go to a town and, and not be received, and you just told them, well, shake off the dust and go on to the next one. So help us do the same thing, Lord. Put a burning in our heart um, to prioritize you in our lives and um, to never be ashamed of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.